Yeah, I'm in the club. They gave me a ring and everything. So, uh, something God's been putting on my heart um, to do, and it's just kind of been clear tonight, I think it'd be kind of cool, or, well, you know, it's, it's cool to obey God. It'd be good to obey God in this. And, and every, so every Sunday night, I was thinking, I'm just going to read a, a verse before we start the study. And what, what I think is good about that is, you know, every Sunday night we read the same verse for like a month. And that, that verse will always be, you know, kind of on your mind. You know how I, I kind of do this synoptic gospels, I mean, seen together. You guys know that now because I won't shut up about it, right? So, um, but, you know, not, not to make the word of God repetitive or anything, or, but I just think it'd be good. And so every, for the last couple of weeks, God's been putting this verse on my heart right before I come up here. And if you, if you would, turn in your Bibles really quick to Philippians chapter 2, picking up at verse 10. And we'll read verse 10 and 11. And I think we're going to do this through the month of January. And then in February, I'll see what, God wants me to, what other verse God wants me to read. But I just think it'll be good. You know, that, that will be a verse, I believe, that God wants you to have on your hearts through the month of, month of January. Philippians 2, verse 10, um, says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, that, and as we've been going through Matthew, that, that verse has really been sticking out to me. Like right before, I, 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 almost, I almost read it last week because I, I just felt the Holy Spirit really pressing that on me. And, uh, but just as we go through Matthew, that verse is kind of, I've used it all the time in, in, as we've been teaching. But if, I don't know, it's just one day... You know, whoever you are, um, whether you believe or you don't, every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, there's no, uh, there's no other name on which anyone could be saved except that of the Lord Jesus. And even through the Old Testament, I believe, I believe any time man ever interacted with God, it was through Jesus Christ. And obviously, the New Testament, because Jesus came to earth. And, uh, and even now, as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, you know, I think of Stephen in his final monologue on earth as he's just really going at the, um, fair, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, if you read it in Acts. And, you know, he looks up and, and Jesus says he's seated at the, at the right hand of God, right? But you, he's, he looks up into heaven right before he gets sown to death and he sees, I see the Lord standing, you know, at the right hand of God. And the fact that God's, that the Lord's like talking about God, talking about God, talking to God about us. And so what I like about this is how, how every, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You know what I like about this is that I know with confidence we do that now. So when we get to heaven, this isn't going to be an issue. You know, when we're standing before the Lord, it's not going to be in, in a begrudgingly, oh, yeah, you're, you're. It's gonna, I believe it's just kind of going to be our natural instinct, you know, because we, we bow to God now, don't we? I hope you do. If you know, we should talk after. But, you know, we, we bow and we, we worship the Lord Jesus now. 
And so anyway, just one more time, that, that verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Anyway, if you would, and you brought your Bibles to the Bible study, turn in them to Matthew chapter 17, where we will be picking up at verse 8. As, um, if you're new tonight, we've been going through Matthew, but we'd also, we've been incorporating Mark and we've been incorporating Luke at certain places. Probably, I've, been, I've noticed I've been leaning more on Mark, but uh, as we've been incorporating these things, this is what's called the Synoptic Gospels. When you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, it's called the Synoptic Gospels. And all synoptic means is seen together. And what that means is as you look at the same, you look at different events going on from different perspectives, you get, a, you get a better picture about the things that are going on in the ministry of the Lord Jesus. You have Matthew, who was a tax collector. And, and, and as, as you get the, if you go and you read through Matthew, and you get the feel of Matthew, you see how Matthew thought. You pick up the personalities of the writers, and you see that Matthew was a numbers kind of guy. He was a tax collector, so he really would have been in tune with that kind of thing, where you see that everything that he does is, you know, evened out. And, uh, and, and Matthew points Jesus as the Messiah. And then you look at Mark, and, tra- and Christian tra- tradition says that Mark would have gotten his account from Peter. And then you look at Dr. Luke, who Luke would, uh, would have known these men that were around Jesus, and he wrote his Gospels. In fact, if you read Luke and you go into Acts, it flows into it because Luke wrote it. And so you, it kind of picks up where Luke ends. And then John, the one whom Jesus loves, is the Apostle John. And so, and, and John may not, John's not necessarily known as the Synoptic Gospel, but still, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so we look at, it, we look at those things when appropriate. Um, and as we're going through this series, I've entitled Sunday Nights, the series, Be Disciples, Be, because of the Beatitudes, little play on words, Disciples, because at the Great Commission, Jesus says, make disciples of all men. So as we go through, let's pick up Matthew chapter 17, reading verses 8 through 13. It says, excuse me, when they had lifted up their eyes, this is, they're on the Mount of Transfiguration. And when they had lifted up their, their eyes and saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you, Elijah has come already. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So, so we have these, so, I mean, I can't imagine you have Peter, and, and uh, James and John, as they're, as they're up there uh, with Jesus. And, you know, they, they've, the, the apostles have seen, uh, have seen these glorious, wonderful things that Jesus has been doing. He's, he's touched people with leprosy. And like I said, leprosy is no joke. If you see leprosy, even today, it's, it's very contagious. And it looks terrible. If you look it up online, you see, like, when you see, I don't recommend doing this. It's really gross. But if you look it up and you see it, it's, 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 it's pretty bad. And, and in those days, you know, especially to a Jew who, who's, you know, with, with all the oral tradition, they have all these certain type of washing rituals and, you, you know, all these unclean type of things from the law and, 
uh, Jesus, Jesus going up and sticking his hand on a leper and healing him would have really blown a Jew's mind. You have Jesus during his ministry who going up and constantly touching people who probably these people have never really been touched by somebody. And I'm just, I'm just, I'm just saying that even before the healing, just being touched in general. You know, it's, it's like I always, I kind of joke, it's kind of messed up because it's like, man, what is Jesus spits in the, in the dirt and rubs mud in his eye, man. You know, that's, I'd be kind of offended if someone did that to me. But, you know, and, and I, but I look, at, I look at what this guy, you know, what he was probably going through in life, and when was the last time someone touched him? You know, because to him, someone was doing something. And that's our God. And that's our Lord who is actively doing something. He's actively healing. He's actively participating in your life and in, in, in cleaning our mess and working and making us and perfecting us because of, because of what he did on the cross. He who began a good work and you will be faithful to complete it. And, and that's just the nature of, of our Lord. And so, and so these apostles would have seen that. And I joke around, it was Andrew, or it was, uh, it was Peter, James, and John, because, not because they were the most super apostles, but maybe they just needed the, the most attention. Maybe God just kind of needed them. You know, you guys need to you know, hang out. Because, you know, you have James and John who, when, uh, when they were rejected at uh, Samaritan City, was like, you know, let's just call lightning heaven, Lord. And he's like, okay, sons of thunder, relax, you know. And then you have, you have Peter who's, who was just told that uh, he hears from God. So he takes Jesus aside when Jesus said he was going to go to the cross, you know, last week and says, come here. And it's like, it's, it's the, the language is as, uh, as an adult taking a child, and that's how he's speaking to, you know, to, to the Lord. You know, come, come, come over here real quick. You know, I speak to your father, and this is what we, you know, that kind of attitude. And he rebukes the Lord, you know, and Jesus says, get behind me. So it's kind of funny because I kind of think, you know, I, I need you guys near me before you guys do anything else, you know, when they go up, when he goes up there. And I just, I just can't imagine if you try to put yourself in those, in those men's position and you know there's something special about the Lord. And, and you know, even, even Peter, is, I think his natural reaction, because he got it from God, was you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. That confession that on the church is built on. Uh, and as, he, as, he, as, he, as he's up there and, they, and they, they've seen the things that Jesus does, and now Jesus suddenly being trans, transformed. His glory being shown. And he's up there with, with Elijah, and he's up there with Moses. And all these things, and then, you know, Peter speaks up, and he says something, and then God inter- intercedes, and God, you know, says, this is my son, hear him. And then when all that left, and the glory of God was gone on that, off that mountain, they were left with Jesus. And it says in verse 8, I'm sorry, um, it says in verse 8 of chapter 17, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And that's who we keep our eyes on through our life. Because I think we're going to, you know, there's times in the church or in our lives as born-again believers, as we go through this life, maybe through, hopefully through discipleship or uh, dealing with our families, well, we'll have super mountain, you know, the whole Christian saying, we'll have mountaintop experiences, whether it's in our family or at church or whatever. And it's great, thanks be to God. And, you know, it's easy to see the face of Jesus then. Or we can have those low valley experiences or those tough times in life and our eyes need to be fixed on the Lord. And, what, what, and seeing that, how after all that stuff, they saw Jesus only. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5, let your conduct be with co- without covetousness. 
Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I love that about, about God. I love that about our Lord because because as born-again believers, Jesus is dwelling with us, is in fellowship with us. It's his name that we, that we call upon to be saved. And, th- and that has a big impact because as, as Christians or born-again believers or whatever you want to call yourself, those who've, who've called upon the name of the Lord, you are representing uh, Jesus to people. And he's with you. And in those moments when, you know, when you go to sin, it's not like Jesus is saying, oh, you're going to go look at that? Okay, well, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to wait in the other room while you go do that. I'll be right here when you're done. No, no, God's with you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You belong to him. And as we do these things and as we, as we move as born-again believers, we're representing Jesus, and that's what people see. Recently, I've been, de- I, I've been dealing with someone, and um, God has put him in my life. And it's easy for me to, to um, I don't want to say judge, but I guess it's judging. Is, is, I'll, I'll, I could see him, he'll, he'll, be, he'll profess to be a Christian, and then he tells me that he's dead inside. And that he's black inside. And I'm like, man, you, you, you claim to be a born-again believer, but you're dead inside? Jesus says, I give life and, more, and life more abundantly, you're dead inside? And it's, it's, I believe he's saved. And Jesus spoke to me and said, how, you, know, he, the, the, you, know, you need to be praying for this individual. Because I'm dealing with him. And if, he, you know, and if he's dealing with that and he truly feels that, then you need to be there and show him, and show him me through your relationship. You can imagine how much pain, how much pain someone that can say I'm, I'm dead inside is going through. Because... We need to be that light into these people. That's the importance of discipleship. That's the importance of it is, is maybe someone who, who, who rubs you the wrong way or, or you know, just flat out is hostile against you, maybe verbally or even physically, is, is you represent Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus died for that individual. And that needs to have an impact in our lives. But as they're going down, they have this mountaintop experience. As they're, as they're going down, you have uh, the apostles. They're with the Lord, and they take advantage of the time with him, and they say, um, Jesus says, you know, tell this vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes and say to Elijah must come first? So, so we're looking at this. The, the verse says in, in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Why then, why then, do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? The disciples have heard that Elijah must come, according to this promise in Malachi. Their question, their question may go, Jesus, we, we know that Elijah comes first before the Messiah. We know that you're the Messiah. Sorry, we know that you're the Messiah. Yet we, we just saw Elijah, and it seems that he came after you. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Jesus reassured the disciples that Elijah would indeed come first, but that the first coming of Jesus did not bring the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Instead, the Malachi 4-5 coming of Elijah is probably best identified with the appearance of the two witnesses. In Revelation chapter 11, verses 3-13, through 13, 
and then the sec- and the and then the second coming of Jesus. If you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter eleven verses three through thirteen, we'll read that and see what it says. All the way in the back. Revelations cha- Revelation chapter eleven. Says, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. There are th- these are the two olive trees, and the two lampstands standing before the God of uh, before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouths and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the, uh, in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over water to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their, and their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And, those who, and then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, making merry and, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after three and a half days, the breath, of li- the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon, the, upon those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid, and gave glory to the God of heaven." But I say to you, Elijah has come already. Yet there was also a sense in which Jesus could rightly say, Elijah has come already. Elijah has, has arrived in the work of John the Baptist, who ministered in Elijah's spirit and power. Luke 1.17 says, He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the Father to the, uh, to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is evident from a comparison of the life and work of both Elijah and John the Baptist. And there's a couple of things here I think it's worth noting is Elijah was noted as being full of zeal for God. So was John the Baptist. Elijah boldly rebuked sin in the high places. So did John the Baptist. In fact, it was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was arrested for calling out Herod for, for stealing you know, another man's wife who turned out to be actually both of their nieces. And he called it out and was arrested for it. Elijah called sinners and, uh, and uh, sinners to be to uh, a decision of repentance. So did John the Baptist. Elijah attracted multi- uh, multitudes in his ministry. So did John the Baptist. Elijah attracted the attention and fury of a king and his wife. So did John the Baptist. If you know the story of Elijah... You know, even there was a point where Elijah was fled, fled, was afraid um, because of this. Elijah was Elijah was an astir man, so was John the Baptist. 
Elijah fled to the wilderness, so did John. Elijah lived in a corrupt time and was used and was used to restore failing spiritual lives, and so was John the Baptist. And so and so in that in that comparison he did. But also what Malachi, what Jesus is saying in Malachi, it's 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 also going to be probably that where Elijah is going to come down and many people think Moses because if you look like we just read in Revelation who was able who was able to shut that well God but you know who did God use to shut the heavens Elijah right he prayed and the rain stopped and then you look at Moses who you know he's the king of bringing plagues upon people you know through the power of God and uh and that's and that's why we think that but you know it could be whoever it is going to be God knows and you know I, I really just genuinely don't plan on being here during that time Maybe I'll just be, you know, maybe I'll, maybe it's way in the future and I'll be dead or I'll, you know, be raptured and we'll be watching from heaven these things unfold. You know, and, and, and those men were used as, as, uh, 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 John the Baptist, if you look at him too, he was used as a forerunner and he was used and had a great impact to call on people to repent. And you look at, and and it's just a little side thing, if you look at Revelation and you look at all the crazy, mighty things. If you read the book of Revelation, you look at all the stuff. I mean, there's angels flying around in heaven calling upon people to repent. They're, they're, you know, it's like atheism is absolutely taking out of the picture. You know, there's no doubt. And you ever wonder, like, what if, what if I can convince? I'm sure we've, we've known atheists, or you have a friend, or maybe even now you're dealing with atheists. And what, what, what if I can convince this person there is a God? Maybe you can do that. Maybe you can convince an atheist there is a God, but if he doesn't turn and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he'll believe in God and hell. You know, you can, if you can convince a Mormon to not be a Mormon, but if they don't turn and become born again and call upon Jesus, what good did it do? And look in Revelation where these people undoubtedly will know at that time there is a God and refuse to refuse him. There will, there will be, don't get me wrong, there will be those that like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, Sean, Sean was right, you know, or whatever. And, uh, and they, they will accept it. But even the demons believe in God. And so it's a, different, it's a difference. It's that family relationship. It's that call upon the name of the Lord and, and receiving that free gift of salvation and then moving in what Jesus has for you because he saved you and he wants to use you. And it's not just God's like, okay, now I want to see what I can get out of you. But he wants, he wants to do that in the aspect of, I love you, but I also love this person and I also love this person and, and I want to see something great happen. So as they're, they're, they're going, they're walking down, picking up at verse 14, We'll read to verse uh, 21. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for, uh, for he is epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and, and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long should I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and that child was was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? 
And Jesus said to him, because, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will be moved, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind, of, this kind does not come out except by prayer and by fasting. I put on here demon child, this part of, uh, this, this part of what we're going to talk about. Demon child. So fasting and praying, Jesus comes down with his guys to this, to this, situa- this situation. And it must have been very discouraging to the rest of the apostles that, that were left there. Because I can imagine, I wonder if the, apostles, the other apostles that were, you know, that, that didn't get to go at the Mount of Transfiguration, if they're like, great, you know, they, Peter, James, and John get to go up with the Lord, and we're stuck down here, and now we can't even do this right, and look, what, what's, look what's going on. You know, it must have been a little discouraging. And you had this guy who, who you know, because the apostles were able to do things. Uh, they had power from the Lord. They were able to, but this one wouldn't. So that must have been very discouraging for them. At the, Why won't this happen? Why won't this work? This worked every other time. And, uh, and it's funny because I look, at, our, I look at, at children. And as far as, as, you know, maybe Christian parents, you have children who, who've, you know, you, you either you, you have brought them up or, or they've, you know, the children that have fallen away from the Lord, I guess is what I'm saying here. And I see this picture. Children that have fallen away from the Lord, you, you have been doing the right thing. Or maybe you haven't been doing the right thing and raising them right, but they've fallen away and they're not walking right. And you're, and, and, but now you're, you're, you're praying and you're, you're, you're trying to give them the word, trying to see if they will even hear it. But they don't. And I see as, it's, as, with, these, as with this demon-possessed child, when they brought, it, when they brought him to the, to the apostles, I've noticed something is, is in our lives is sometimes things will get worse in our children's life before they get better. That's a possibility. But so, so what do we do? We fast and pray. Jesus says, this kind doesn't come out except, except um, I'll just read it. So Jesus said, because of your unbelief, for surely I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it, will, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And, you, and, and as you look at the language, a lot of scholars, will, as, as you're looking, as I was looking this up, is, is well, what, what kind comes out? You mean the faith to cast out the demon? Or the demon itself? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, you could tell you, there's probably some in here that, that believe one way or the other. I say both. Why not both? Fasting and praying for more faith or fasting and praying for it? Fast and pray is the point. Whatever it means as far as specifically whether it's to get the faith to cast out demon out or to, to just cast out the demon, well, we need to be having the attitude of, of, of fasting and praying. Mark 9.24 says, Immediately the father of the child cried out and said in tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And I like that he's inviting Jesus, and his fam- Jesus into his family situation. Like I said, sometimes it, might, you know, it could be a struggle, and it's a spiritual warfare in your families, and, it, and there's times where it might get worse before it gets better, but God is so faithful. And, and like my dad, I've heard my dad say, if you're not praying and you're not fasting for your children, you're not even trying. Because I promise you with everything in me, I am the example of my parents starving a lot, fasting and praying. 
And here you could look at it and, they, and you could think, well, when, when, you know, how would they, why didn't they do that? They should have known to do that. If, if, wouldn't they have done that if they known? Maybe they just didn't know. They, no, they knew to pray. What does it say in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, which was before this? Jesus says, when you pray. It wasn't if you pray. So he commanded them, and we know chapter, you know, 5 and 6 takes place way before 17. So as, it, you know, as, they're, as it's kind of writing as Jesus' ministry goes along, Jesus told them, when you pray. In fact, he even says, when you fast. And like I've, I've said before, when it comes down to fasting, I don't believe because you're hungry, God's sitting there going, oh, okay, wait, what do you want? I can hear better when your stomach's growling. You know, like, like Jesus hears you more, or Jesus is, is, is more prone to do what you want because you happen to be hungry. God, I've been fasting for four days, and I just want a fatter bank account. You know, like God's like, oh, okay. No, that's not what it is. But when you fast, you're, you're doing something, your, your physical body. It's funny because when I've, I, I've, uh, I was hearing a pastor talk about this, and I've done the same exact thing, and it's, and it's, it's the worst. Fasting is the worst. I hate it. Like, I like it because you're drawing near the spirit of my flesh, speaking from my flesh from the pulpit. I don't know if I should do that, but it's, it hates it. Let's just be honest. Let's be real. Fasting is the worst. I like food. I like food so much. You know, I like eating all, I'll eat all day long. I don't care. It's the greatest thing in the world. But I mean, look, the Jews are awesome. They had a religion based upon food. No, based upon the Lord. But you know what I mean? Like, they have all these feasts, you know. Um, but as you get up, like, you, you decide to fast. So you get up in the morning, and you're kind of tired, and you turn the coffee on. And then you go over, and you, you, pour, you pour your fiber-plus cereal into the bowl. And then that's when the Holy Spirit, for some reason, waits to tell you, Hey, I thought you were going to fast today. And you look at your cereal, and you pour it back into the box, and you throw it back into the shell begrudgingly. But you know what that conflict is there? It's fighting your flesh. And that's what fasting does. Fi- fasting helps you fight your flesh. And as you're fasting and you're fighting your flesh and you're gorging your... I kind of look at it like as I'm hungry, man, I need to really gorge myself in the Word because, I mean, something's getting fed here the way I eat, you know. But I, I, might, as well, I might as well feed my spirit in the Word and, and in prayer. But... But you, as fasting, it helps you fight your flesh so that when you come across certain things in your life that really tempt you, or certain situations that may be just a little bit overbearing and you need, you need help from God, but, but your flesh doesn't want you to do it, or your flesh, or your flesh struggles with it. Well, as you, as you learn to exercise that battle in fasting and battling your flesh, I think that helps you in, the, in everyday life uh, as far as things that, that may be tempting you more. And I think that's what fasting does. I think that's why God wants God says when you do it. And so this comes, so whether, whether or not it's, it's to get the faith or whether or not it's to cast the demon out, we need to have born-again believers, disciplers, in a lifestyle of prayer and of fasting. Now, when do we do that? Every Sunday. No, I don't know. That's between you and God. If God's telling you to fast, do it. And pr- I promise that, that when God commands you to fast, that's the very first struggle between you and your flesh right there. Because you're like, I know, but God, I mean, like today, tonight's pizza night, you know, like I don't want to do it. And if you have a medical condition, please don't leave here and fast and get, you know, and, and faint. I'm not going to say any names, but, you know, we serve a God of logic and he, he's not going to want you to hurt yourself. So don't, you know, if you have, if you, you know. If you have severe diabetes or something, and you, you know, I'm going to go on a 30-day no-food water fast, please don't do that. And then do, if you do that, don't blame me. But, um, you know, we, 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 
Use common sense. And it doesn't, you know, if, if, if it's dangerous for you to fast food, fast something that your flesh likes. Like for my dad, it's golf. Maybe he needs to fast that sometimes. He'll probably disagree with me, but. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know what I'm saying. You're laughing because you know what it is, you know, whatever it is. If, if it's too dangerous to fast food, fast something that your flesh is into. Because I, I guarantee you, as you, as you build that up, it's like, a, it's like training. Like Marine Corps training, we train so that we train ridiculously hard so that we can fight ridiculously well. And I kind of think of that in fasting. As you fight your flesh and it's super hard, when, the, when it comes down to it, you're even more in, your, 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 your spiritual natural inclination is even more to, to the Lord, to go to the Lord, to seek the Lord in these. And that's what happens here. That's what Jesus is trying to get, get across to them. Is like, this is what you do. Because remember, there was one point where the, um, okay, I just thought of it now, so I don't know exactly where, but when the rabbis, the scribes and Pharisees, they come up and say, how come your, how come your disciples don't fast? He said, well, because they're with me. They don't have to, but they are. But you notice Jesus never commanded them not to. In fact, he told them, when you do it, you are going to do this. It's something I believe the Lord expects of us. It says, Matthew 6, 5, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, that they might be seen by men. I'm sure they say to you, they have their reward. And six sixteen, if you're wondering where it says, And when, um, I'm sorry, I, I copied the same exact verse. That was dumb. Um, and it also says it somewhere else there. Sorry, I apologize. Mark nine fourteen through 29 says it was a demon. And one more thing it shows, it shows the reality of spiritual warfare in this situation. A real demonic presence. The enemy will always try to ruin your mountaintop experience with Jesus. Will try to take you out of fellowship just like he is out of fellowship. And you know something I spoke this uh, Saturday, yesterday, with, with the small group at Joshua Springs. Normally we're in 2 Corinthians we had this really awesome prayer time, but it, you know, like we won't, we won't set to, I'm going to boast about them because I love this small group and I don't care. But th- we, we had the, we, we never sacrificed prayer time. You know, I don't mean to get the glory, get the reward. I'm just telling you, I love this about the small group is that we never sac like, well, we better, you know, I'm not going to be able to say anything if I don't shut this down now. So I'm going to stop prayer. So like, I can talk for 15 minutes or something, you know? No, we never, never, ever sacrifice. We'll, pr- if we pray the whole time, then that's what, then I believe that's what God wanted us to do. So anyway, we were really involved in our prayer um, for the small group, and it really went long. And so it was only like 10 minutes worth of what, you know, of where we were supposed to be. So instead I talked about this, and I think it relates as the enemy will try to ruin mountaintop experiences. The enemy will try to enter into your families and ruin that, especially if you're in ministry or if you're just doing what Jesus wants you to do as a man. And, you know, maybe you go to work every day, and the most you can do is take him to church, and when you can't give him devotions. The enemy hates that. The enemy, in fact, has been hating that since the beginning. And I, was, uh, I got this from Sandy McIntosh on Friday when we were, we were at a date night with Mike and Sandy McIntosh. And, uh, you know, if you notice in Genesis, after this glorious bringing together, God made Adam a like, for real, reached into him, pulled out a rib, and formed this beautiful woman. I'm assuming she was pretty. I don't know. But, you know, he did this beautiful, glorious thing, you know. Because you've got to look at you look at Adam, who's looking at all the animals, who, who, even the animals have someone else. And then now God made someone for him, and he must have been like, dude, this is awesome. And then what's the next thing? Then the serpent. 
And, isn't, and, and she pointed this out, and this was dead on. And isn't that what God does to us? Not God, no. I'm sorry, excuse me. Let me take that back. That heresy. Isn't that what the enemy does? He's, you know, I think there's something there that we never really, th- maybe, we don't, maybe you do think about it, and that's great. But, but I, think, I think revivals happen within the family. I think awakenings of the church happen within the family because this is the family of God here. This is not just a corporate building that we pay rent on. This is not just a place where we go only in midweeks and only on Sundays. But I believe it's a family closeness that we have and that we can only get better at and get tighter in. Now, I'm not giving an open excuse to like go in other people's business, but you know, but we are called to make disciples. We are called to have that bond in spiritual warfare, efe- efficient war fighters. The, you know what makes Marines the best? You know what makes Navy SEALs the best? Almost as good as Marines. You know what makes, you know what makes Delta and, and uh, the Green Berets and uh, what does the Air Force have? The, the parachute guys, whatever. You know, what are they called? Yeah, the Rangers, you know what makes them good? It's, it's not just their training, although the training's great. And it's not just whatever, you know, war-fighting doctrine they have, or I'm sure it's, it's good. It's that bond within their platoons. That is the common denominator that makes an efficient warfighter great on the battlefield. It's not because I'm fighting for freedom. And while, while we are in the army of God, and I'm saying, it's not, not because I'm in the army of God and because of God, it is God, but you know what else it is? The strongest part of that bond as Christians that we have is discipleship. That's what makes us, that's what makes, I don't want to say makes us great, but that's what, that's what people look at. That's the goodness of God that leads people to repentance when they see that brotherhood and that sisterhood. And you can go to the gates of hell and the gates of hell will not prevail is when we're, we're, we're receiving from the Lord and we're pouring out into individuals. And we're pouring out, and that's what the Lord's saying, and that's what Jesus is doing here. And the enemy will enter, and that's what a family is, and the enemy will try to ruin that, and he will start in the family. You notice Job? What happened with Job? Everything was removed from Job's life. He was restored to everything, like, by double. Even his children, right? He, his three, he said, three, what, his children died. Yeah, but they're still alive, right? They, they're in eternity. But, wait, but, I mean, uh, but look at Job. Everything was taken away from Job. And what, 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 what was not taken away from Job? His wife. Why? I believe God holds us a really, really important, strong value in marriage. And I believe that's why, that's why you know, like, well, his wife wasn't that great, Sean. Yeah, okay, look, I'm not saying she's, the, she's a saint. But, but it seems like she wasn't allowed to be taken. I don't think it was because the enemy knew she was going to say that. I think it's because God values family. Because Christ is like, because we're the bride of Christ. And if marriage is a picture of Jesus' relationship to us, we must understand the importance of that. And the enemy will go in to try to disrupt that. Look at Ananias, Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. The enemy will try to get into that. The enemy slipped into Adam and Eve, and look what happened in the course of history. But God but raise a child in the way that she sh- he should go. When, when God wants you to just not only pour devotions into your kid's life, but understand your children. He doesn't want only to, to, to pour devotions and prayer onto your wife, but understand the way she is. Leave 
in the way she should go. Lead them, your children, in the way that they should go. Understand their strengths. Understand their weaknesses. Yeah, you know what? You, you, you know, I'm not, I don't know anything, but I'm not saying this particularly to David. But, man, you know, David, you're not so much with the numbers. Maybe you should go and be a writer or something, you know, just using an example. And do that in discipleship, too. Take it a step further. Pour into somebody here at the church. You know, I, you know, man, I, 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 you know, I went to college and, you know, I got a philosophy degree and it was really, it was really dumb. I'm not saying if you have a philosophy degree, it's dumb. I'm just saying, don't do that. Because, you know what, if you get this degree, because if I can go back in time, you know what, I would, I would have done a math degree and be all in finances and, you know, been investing and stuff. But anyway, like, we can pour that into people's lives. And this spiritual warfare is, is in a, it's, the, it's a direct attack. I don't care where you are in the world. It's a direct attack on the family because God holds a very important value in family. And I think that starts in the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's a family thing. He, I mean, he, he, God brought his, his son. God brought God into the world through a family. It's a very important thing. And we look at, uh, we look at Ephesians chapter 6, verse, verse 12. For we do not wrestle, and speaking of spiritual warfare, in, in, our, in our homes being the battlefield, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. You notice as Paul's writing in Ephesians, he doesn't say, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, so it's okay, relax. No, what does he say? We're warring against something. We're warring against... Satan, who is created, it says he was created in the language perfect until an iniquity was found in him. And Jude, Michael, I might have this later, I might be getting ahead of myself, but Jude says Michael the archangel in contending for the devil for Moses doesn't bring a raging accusation against him, but says the Lord rebuke you. There's, there's a very powerful thing going on for the lives of your children because that's how Satan keeps this country divided. Because that's how Satan keeps this earth divided. Whether you're in Iran or you're in the United States of America, it's the attack on the home that's what's going on. And when we come together as a church and start discipling, that's where the difference will be because the difference is Jesus who holds a certain value, holds value in family relationships. You see in, in Ephesians 6, there's different ranks and powers. Important to see, important why we need to be in, we need to be fighting our flesh and fasting and in prayer a lifestyle of prayer and fasting because of the things and the different ranks and powers within the demonic world that we're fighting. We, we, we do this because of failure, but what does failure do? Failure teaches us a lot. And in their failure, I'm, taking a, I'm bringing up failure. What are you talking about? Failure because the apostles failed to cast the demon out. Failure was, in fact, good for them. You know, because they were actively trying to do something. They were involved in what God had for them. And failure, it taught them not to get out, it taught them not to get into a rut of mechanical ministry. Well, this always works. In the name of Jesus, come out. That must, you know, if, if every single other time the demon came out of that, of a person, and this was the first time, that must have been shattering, like, how do I say this? Must have been, like, devastating at that, right at that moment. Have you ever had that in ministry? Has, has ministry ever been devastating? Because this, this is supposed to work. This is what the, God, you promised God, you said. And I, if we do it like this, like this every single day, it's supposed to work like this. Right of ministry, it's an act of being involved. It taught them 
it taught them the great superiority of Jesus because Jesus is God. It taught them to wish for the presence of Jesus. It taught them to come to Jesus with the problem. So we pray and fast because it helps us depend on Jesus and not Cheerios or whatever. Or tortillas with mustard if you happen to eat that. My wife gets mad at me because she's just full on raging at me here because, <laughs> because she, she thinks I eat weird things. Like I was dipping pickles in A1 sauce and I see nothing wrong with this. And I, all that says is I really need to rely on the Lord because I fast and I, you know, I don't have weird food habits. Anyway, um, we fast not to turn the ear of God more towards us, but to deny our flesh. And, you're, I mean, and like I said, as we fast, you're, 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 your, body's gonna use, your, your flesh is going to use the Bible against you, like even before the enemy does. It's going to say, what kind of work-based nonsense is fasting, Sean? Well, I thought we were in this together. You need to eat because you decided to go to the gym. And I'm, let me tell you, I'm not a big fan of that either, but you've got to have food, right? You know, and, but as, like I said, it's just my point. As you deny those things, you become less, the, the, less reliant on your flesh, and you become more reliant. And like it says in, 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 in chapter 17, verse 8, when you become reliant on this, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus. Matthew seventeen twenty two through 23 says, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And on the third day, he will be raised up, and they were exceedingly sorrowful. And if you look, and Luke, hey, we're losing Luke here. Luke 24, 6 through 8, it says, He is not here, but he is risen. Remember like right here, how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, the Son of Man must, must be delivered into the hands of sinful man and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. This is what they were remembering. I don't know. I don't know if that's cool to you guys, but, you know, as, as a scholar, or someone that, you know, fancies himself as a scholar of the Bible, I think that's exciting because it shows, it shows that it was all the same thing going on. It wasn't just someone else making up stories of Jesus and Luke. No, it's the same account. That's why we look at these things synoptically because they're remembering something that was brought up in Matthew because they were all there. And I think that's neat. The disciples didn't want to hear this and they kind of, I believe, chose to ignore this. Luke points, that, uh, points this out later to them. Points this out later to them. Awesome that Jesus knows what he is doing and knows what he is doing in your life. Be in your word, not because it is what we do as Christians, but put the word of God in your heart that it may be in you and work through you. Jesus knew they didn't want to hear it. I mean, you look at the, the attitude of the apostles, and it's like, it's like when Jesus died on the cross, it blew their minds or something. Like, he, he told them more than once what's going to happen. And you know what's funny? As we read these things and what's going to happen in Revelation, and we read these things, about, you know, what, what are we waiting on? We're waiting on what? Jesus? That's it? Because at this time, there's a bunch of stuff that still needed to happen, right? Like, you look at the Bible, and like, okay, let's just, like, there's, for everything that has come true so far, that's amazing. Look, I am not a math person or a numbers guy or anything by any means. I promise you. I was getting excited because I was relearning. I was watching like hours of YouTube on redoing multiplication. I was bugging Lindsay. I was like, hey, look at this. She's like, oh, that's great. You're adding. Um, 
And I have no idea what the statistics are, and, and I've heard examples, but like, what are the odds of these prophecies coming together? What are the odds of Israel coming together as a nation for the second time? I'd be very interested in that. And up to this point, Jesus is getting ready to fulfill prophecy. And it's like the apostles are just like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to talk about you dying, man. You know, but, but, but th- that had to have such a profound impact later. And on the third day he will rise up. Jesus rarely told his disciples about his coming death without also telling of his coming resurrected, resurrection. We know that the disciples didn't really comprehend the glorious triumph of the resurrection because they were exceedingly sorrowful. Matthew 17, 24 through 27 says, When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher pay, them, pay the temple tax? And Peter says, Yes. Well, yes, he does, or yes, he doesn't. What are you saying? Peter in his mouth. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the, who the, whom do the kings of the earth take customs or, for, uh, or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. I just, I love Peter. Like, I, Peter's like, I love Peter because I'm, I'm more like, so, oh, I feel like it, in my wrong attitude, I feel like I'm the worst people in the Bible. I feel like I'm, I'm King Saul. King Saul would say, you know, your God. King Saul never said my God. Like David would say, David referred to God as his God. David had a relationship, but if, on paper, if you look at the difference between da- King David and King Saul, King, King David was kind of terrible. <laughs> King David was really bad. Like he murdered and had an adulterous affair. I'm not saying Saul never did, but if you read it, you know. But, but Saul, Saul didn't have that relationship. I feel like Balaam. I hear from God, and then I could use the word of God to manipulate people. And, it, and, and to my shame, I've, I've done that before in drunken states in my rebellion, where I'm sitting there at a drunken party, you hear the Bible, like an idiot. And I feel like these terrible people in the Old Testament. But what gives me so much hope is I feel like Peter, called by God, called by the Lord, this loving relationship where, where, where you know, as, as, as I'm looking at family as, 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 the, um, as, as an example of Christ to the church, and I look at how much I love my wife, singing and dancing over, when Jesus says in Zephaniah 3.17, I'm going to sing over you. I get that feeling. I get that emotion. I get that concept. And as Jesus called me like he called Simon, I get it. And Simon's just trying to do it. Simon's just trying to figure it out and say the right thing all the time. Where Jesus is like, you know, probably don't. You know? All right, here, you, does your, you know, and then that, that heat of the intense moment, does your, does, your, does your Lord pay the temple tax? Yes. And then he probably had to go, oh, man, you know, he's walking back. You know, Jesus, do we pay the temple tax? I just, I love that. Peter does the right thing and goes to the Lord after he opens his mouth. After A.D. 70, when the temple was destroyed, the Romans uh, diverted this tax to the uh, temple of Jupiter in Rome, after which it ceased to be a matter of patriotism and became a symbol of their subjection to a pagan power. The fact that the story is nonetheless recorded is one of the uh, 
incidental indications that Matthew's gospel should be dated before A.D. 70. Because like I said before, a Jew, if this, if this gospel was written after 70 A.D., would talk about the temple being destroyed because a Jew's life was the temple. Why? Because God dwelt in the temple. And so that should, that's something a little, a little apologetics for you, for you Bible scholars in this room. That, 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 that this should be uh, an example that this was written before the, the destruction of the temple. I think that's kind of cool. The tax supported the Levites. Peter gave the quick and natural answer to this question, but Jesus explained that he is not liable to pay the tax because the father doesn't require it of his own son. Rabbis were exempt from paying the tax, and so were the, uh, the priests in Jerusalem. Would Jesus claim a similar exception? The question assumes that he does pay regularly, and Peter agrees. And Jesus says, ne- you know, I, I don't have to, but nevertheless, since we offend them. And I just like that. It's the first time Peter actually used a hook. You know, he's always been casting out nets because he can't catch anything. But he's, he's always casting. But this time he uses a hook. And, and, and just in this, I, I love how even the Lord is doing the right things and not, not to offend them. But I like how there's one fish in the Sea of Galilee out there that has a gold piece in his mouth, and Peter catches that one fish. I mean, that, okay, what are the odds of that happening? And then you look at your life, and is God ever really out of control of your life and your situation? It's God's provision. Because what is it to God? What, when, remember when Jesus... Jesus had just fed the 4,000. And then, and then he, tells them to be, he tells his apostles to beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. And, the, and then the apostles are like, oh, it's because we forgot to grab the fragments of the 4,000. Jesus is like, man, I could, you know, I think Jesus is probably just saying, I could have made it rain manna right now if I really if thought it was a bread, bread situation. I just fed 5 plus 4,000 people. And the reality of that is a lot more because they didn't involve the women and children. And God's provision in your life. And something else that I kind of look at here, and I see, and we'll close with this. We, we don't know why Jesus did not tell Peter to provide enough to pay for all the disciples here. It was just him and Peter. Perhaps it was implied or understood um, that, that it was just between Jesus and Peter. But also, you look at this, yet he did, not, he did pay for Peter. And I look at this as a foreshadowing of the work of the redemption for all men. Jesus, who did not actually owe the price, paid it nonetheless. And at some time, with the same price, paid for Peter as well. So because of that, Jesus paid the price. That's why we do things like, like we give. Because this life, do you believe in eternity? That, that you, know, we're, you know, we're in the womb for like what? what eight months? I don't know how long a baby's in the womb for, whatever. Um, Nine months? Let me tell you about children. No. But we're in the womb for like, well, however long it is. Like, you know, I don't know. I guess it's something hard. Nine months. Thank you. And, and then we're in this life for however long. But we're in this earth for how long? Ninety years, maybe? And then we're in, we're in eternity. That's why we do things like That's why we give. Now, now, I'm not harping on giving. Please, I promise you my dad and say, hey, hey close the giving tonight. You know, we need, we need a new couch in my office. But that is not what he said. Not what he said. Let me make that clear. 
But we do things because we do things like when you pray, when, when you fast. And we give because this is what we're a part of. And it's, I'm not saying it has to be necessarily to Calvary Chapel, Ontario. But as, as God gives to you, so as I've received from the Lord, so do I give. And I believe that's not just only finances, but that is what you get from God in your personal lives. To pour in to your wives, to pour into your children, and to pour in to other people. What does God provide for you? See the face of Jesus. And when you see the face of Jesus, go describe his face to people. Go, go, go share his goodness. Because, you know, as Jesus keeps saying, I'm going to die and rise again from the dead, eventually he does. And look what the apostles did. The world got turned upside down. Maybe Ontario can get turned upside down. Father God, Lord, we just come before you once again, Lord. And Lord Jesus, we just ask that these things would, would just be planted deep and within our soul, deep within our hearts, Lord, and that we would take them and apply them to our lives. Lord, that, we, that, that, that when, when that Lord, if, if we're having a certain issue with sin in our lives, whoever it may be in this room, me included, Lord, that we would, that we would take the time to fast and pray, to fight our flesh, Lord. Because with you, all things are possible. Because at the name of Jesus, every tongue will confess. Because, all, because, we, because when we call upon your name, we are saved. So Lord, just help us when we pray. Help us when we fast. And like that father who brought his, his child to you, help our unbelief tonight, Lord. Bind us together. Draw us together, Lord Jesus. You are God. You are the Savior. You are the Son of God. And we love you, Lord. Lord, as we sing one last song to you tonight, Lord, we just ask that you'd be pleased by our song to you, Lord, that, we'd, that you'd be pleased by us meeting tonight, Lord, and that we would take these things and talk about them through this week, Lord. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. You all stand, please. Again, we have the couples. Uh, I left it down there. We have the um, couples dinner coming up.